Thank you. Am I on? Yes, I wasn't on. You're right. So for the recording, I'd like to offer some reflections this evening on the theme of faith and what this means for us in the context of this practice and this path. In some ways, I think we could usefully understand faith as the the ground that we rest upon in our practice. As we engage in this rather curious and possibly even peculiar activity that we are exploring together, as we pay attention to our experience directly and as wholeheartedly as we are you know, able to do, one of the things that stands out, and it's a theme that we come back to in many ways, but one of the primary things that starts to stand out to us is the, the sense of the shifting ground of experience. How there really isn't very much we can point to or that we experience in our mind, in our body, in our world that seems to stay the same for that long. And when we start to notice that, and we might notice it in terms of how our mind, sometimes it feels like a comfortable place to abide, and other times it feels like not such an easy place. Likewise, our body. And uh, someone speaking with me this morning, talking about the sense of their body and some health issues and just no place to rest in the body. And when when it has a sense of, you know, what is it like for us? Or this, this very primary and challenging experience we have of, of wondering, well, what can I rest upon? What, what is it to come to rest, to find something, you know, really that can hold us, we might say. When we see that experience as it changes doesn't really offer that to us. And this we could understand, I think, as a question of faith. Faith in the, uh, in the Pali language, which... Uh, I think we've mentioned is uh, the language the Buddha's teachings were recorded in. The, the word that uh, most closely accords with the word we use, faith, is, is sada. And one of the translations for sada, which is a rather delightful translation, I find, is to rest the heart upon. That sense of something that allows us to rest the heart, that offers us some, in a way, refuge and ground in the face of a of a shifting and uncertain experience of life and reality in the form of what occurs to us, within us, and around us. So, for many of us, this word has some, you know, quite significant resonance, and it can have been used in certain ways to exert pressure on us to sort of have a belief system. And that's really not what we're speaking about or how I understand the 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 real or the genuine meaning of this this term. But I think it's probably true for for many of us that the process of life in which we might initially come with a sense of sort of kind of quite bright hope and sense of possibility, and particularly one sees this in young children. Not always, but certainly often enough to recognize that probably we all had it at some time and some of us lost it maybe a little earlier than others, but a sense of hope, a sense of possibility that in the face of the 
sometimes the painful and confusing and distressing experiences we can encounter through our life, that there's a, a sense of a disappointment and a disillusionment that takes place. Uh, we could describe this as a loss of faith. That there's a sense of, I'm not sure, sure I really believe in anything. I'm not sure I really have something that I can rest my heart in. Not in people, not in things. They turn out to be unreliable. Not in religions which tell me what I'm supposed to do or believe or ideologies that you know, might look wonderful and uh, when put into practice by unfortunately imperfect human beings turn out to be as limited as pretty much everything else. So we might imagine, and something I once thought of myself, and I've certainly heard from plenty of people, that no, I don't really have faith, I don't really do that, it's, you know. And, you know, here we are in what we often call a, a wisdom tradition. You know, Buddhist practice often referred to as a wisdom tradition. And for some of us, it's kind of like a relief. Phew, at least I don't have to do that faith thing, you know, where you're supposed to believe. You know, this is, this is going to be based on hard empirical evidence. You know, I can do that. So we might imagine or conceive. And yet, the truth of it is that we're expressing the quality of sada, of faith. We're resting our heart, or, or seeking to rest our heart and our life in every moment, in every action, in almost everything we do. At some level, we are expressing faith in something. Just in our action, even if we don't think or conceive it that way. So, just to sit on a chair, one has the faith that it's going to support our weight or else we wouldn't do it or we do it really mindfully and carefully and most of us just sit in it, boom, because we trust that these things are designed to bear our weight. And likewise, we walk on the ground and we don't imagine that as we step on a piece of earth we might sink into it. We just trust that it will hold our weight up and for the most part that's true. Though interestingly, and some of you may have heard in, in Christchurch in New Zealand, which is my home city, uh, in recent times a lot of the earth through a series of earthquakes has been liquefied. So what was solid has become liquid. And it's not that the houses need rebuilding, it's that the ground doesn't exist as a solid thing anymore. The houses need rebuilding as well. But just the sense of, oh my gosh. And so we are expressing faith when we walk on the earth. Because it isn't guaranteed that stuff will continue to be solid. But mostly it's quite reliable. I'm not meaning to sort of generate any agitation or anxiety. I don't want you to be doing your walking meditation and sort of, uh, is it going to hold me up? Because, you know, mostly it does. But to see that there is something we're expressing, even as we take a step, that's saying, yeah, I've, I've learned that I can trust my weight to this medium, which we call, you know, earth, land, ground, the planet. So the question to me isn't so much, do we have faith? But to really look, well, what am I placing my faith in? And can it, and does it bear the weight? Or the, does it offer the ground and the holding that I'm looking for from this? So if we tried to walk in quicksand, we'd pretty quickly find out, hmm, no, that's not such a good idea. So, one of the elements of, in a way, cultural faith that we live in, and we live in a, a culture where a lot of religious faith or spiritual faith is, is not necessarily the primary thing we orient towards, but for many of us there's a, there's a belief that happiness, satisfaction, well-being, and 
what we're really looking for in life comes through the process of gaining and avoiding experience. And we might not think that's what I have faith in, but so far as we spend our time and our energy, and I guess we've all had the chance to notice how we do that, even in just two days, we've, I'm sure, all seen moments where we're thinking, I really need this to happen for my meditation to be okay. I really need that noise to go away, whatever it is. Or I really need the, the fan to be on, or else it's just not going to be possible. We kind of, and, and of course for someone else, they really need the sound of that fan to go away. So, you know, you can see we're going to have problems. But um, when we operate out of this movement of trying to, in a way, control and manipulate experience, what we're expressing is an underlying belief and perception, perspective, really, that that's how happiness comes and satisfaction and ease and peace. When we act on that belief, we're expressing our faith in it. Just as when we act in our belief that the chair will hold me up We're expressing our faith in that belief when we sit in the chair. And so, another one, that's kind of very, um, you know, broadly based faith in in our society, it seems. Most people seem to adhere to it to a significant degree. That gaining or avoiding experience will bring happiness. Another one that relates very much to... uh, what we experience in the meditation equally is the sense that, and the belief that thinking will solve the real problems of my life. We, we have faith in this idea. Even though we might find that thinking process troubling, the fact that we engage in it so enthusiastically, so um, you know, compellingly, is because at some level we believe it's going to serve us. And again, we're expressing faith by enacting that belief. We're saying, oh yeah, that's what's going to get me out of this problem. So as a counterpoint to that, we're invited to, to contemplate what it would be to rest our faith in the Dharma, to rest our faith in the way things are, rather than the manipulation of the way things are, to rest our faith in the meeting of experience, rather than the trying to experience. And in terms of Dharma teachings, we are invited to to base our actions in wisdom and compassion, to see if this might be a ground that our heart can rest in, to see the way things are. Our natural response is actually to orient differently, to find a different ground of faith a different ground of life. And in some ways it comes down to the question, um, you know, are we most interested in comfort or freedom? Because avoiding one experience or pursuing another, one way or another in the end comes down to comfort, trying to get more of it. I know this isn't always what we were hoping to hear when we come on a retreat. We think, actually, wouldn't it be nice to have a really comfortable body and a really comfortable meditation experience and a comfortable mind that's enjoying all of that? And of course, those experiences are possible and important (coughs) when they arise for us. They are in the field of what can happen. But 
there's a deeper possibility here. There's a deeper possibility and our aspiration is important with regard to this. To have some sense of faith or trust that there's more here for us in this life than just spending it trying to improve the number or the ratio of pleasant to unpleasant experiences. So the place of sada, of faith, is that when we can rest our heart in something, it allows us to act. It allows action to flow in a way that's free and that's wholesome and that's serving our well-being and the well-being of, of life. So sada is described as, the, in a way, the first, though. It's kind of a circular thing, but traditionally described as the first of the the spiritual faculties, as these particular qualities and capacities that the Buddha pointed to as things we can develop that will serve us profoundly. And there's many different gatherings and groupings of such qualities the Buddha spoke about. But these particular, the, the faculties, or the indriya, is the, the Pali word, are faith, sada. And the next is energy or effort, virya. Then the, the third is, is mindfulness, sati. The fourth is concentration or unification of mind, samadhi. And the fifth is, is wisdom, panya. And the Buddha speaks about, and we can see for ourselves how coming from a sense of faith, and we might just, even though we don't quite know for sure if paying attention to our breath or cultivating a sense of kindliness towards another or ourselves is really going to make a difference. Or noticing the experience in our body as we take a step. We might not, to begin with, be sure if this is going to make a difference. But if we have some sense that, oh yeah, maybe it will. Other people seem to have found it useful. So maybe well, we come with some degree of sense of possibility, a, a sort of a, a beginning of faith, we might say, of trust there. And then we engage in the process. We, we apply ourselves to it. We, we put forth effort or energy, virya. We engage. And through that, what we start to notice that almost despite ourselves, we are becoming more present. We are able to sustain that connection, to deepen that connection, to notice what's going on. Mindfulness actually begins to build. And with that, we notice then that the mind becomes more gathered, more centered, more focused. And when we talk about samatha, samadhi, I think it's useful to think of it as gathered and focusedness rather than concentration, because concentration always tends to have the sense of tightness in the way we use that word. It's like squeezing something and forcing it into focus, rather than gathering and allowing it to naturally shape into a, into a coherent and more precise organ, which is really what the mind is that can see, that can penetrate. And in that penetrating capacity, when it's gathered and not fragmented, wisdom naturally arises. We start to understand. We start to understand what's going on. We see more clearly. And as we see more clearly, we realize, oh, actually, yeah, this is useful. It does seem beneficial. So the faith deepens. And we can see how that process cycles. And the, the development through time and practice with these five Indriya, these five qualities of, of faith, energy, effort, or, and then mindfulness, concentration, 
collectedness and wisdom, how these deepen into what are then called the powers, where they actually have enough depth and strength that they mean we're no longer subject to being dominated by the hindrances which we've spoken about, the, the, the tendencies of reactivity in which we get lost. So these are forces that counterbalance and eventually overcome them, which we develop through practice. And so faith is the foundation and the first in this. And we, we require that to even begin practice, as I said. Some faith must be there. Even if we're, we're not sure, we're still leaving the question open. And that's actually healthy and wise. We're not trying to sell you anything here or convince you of anything. But really, just as the, Buddha, the Buddha's invitation was, come and see. Check this out. And I think it's just a beautiful way to approach things. It's like, let's see what's possible here. Now, this quality of faith is also sometimes confused with passivity, with somehow putting faith in something which then takes responsibility and we no longer have it. And, you know, classically we can hear this in some religious contexts and frameworks that it's all up to some deity or it's all up to, you know, fate, which is just another form of the same thing. It's not about abandoning responsibility, but it is about a balance of responsibility. What faith involves a certain degree of trust, a certain degree of allowing, and also an engagement. There's a, there's a great story, which um, probably some of you know, of a, of a person who uh, in their town there was a, a flood warning and they were very uh, devoted and religious and thought, oh, you know, I'm, I should be safe here, this won't be a problem. And the flood water was coming down the roads and a big SUV came down saying, you know, jump in, we'll, we'll save you. And uh, I have great faith in my, in my saviour, he will save me. God will save me. And so the water rises and he has to climb up onto the first floor of his building. And, uh, actually, do you call the first floor the ground floor here? You do, don't you? So we're talking about the second floor. Okay, the second floor of the building. Um, the water's come up to there, and, and a boat comes past saying, jump in, jump in, we'll save you. Said, oh no, I have great faith. So I'm a very devout man. God will save me. The water keeps rising, he gets onto his roof, helicopter comes past, storms and lightning, they throw down a ladder, say, climb up, we'll save you. No, no, God will save me. And the water keeps rising, the man dies. And as would be expected, he turns up in heaven, which, you know, only seems right. But he goes up to God and he says, God, I don't understand. I had faith in you. I believed you would save me. And God says, yeah, I don't understand either. I sent an SUV, a boat, and a helicopter. <laughs> so sometimes we're kind of looking for something grand to save us. Something that doesn't involve us participating in the process. Meditation practice asks us to take responsibility for, you know, yeah, taking the boat or the helicopter as and when it shows up. It's not that we somehow imagine that if we believe in the Dharma or love the Dharma that it's going to do everything for us. It doesn't mean that we won't encounter challenges or difficulty or struggle at times. And a dear friend of mine at the moment working with some really difficult things in her life and it's like wow you know all these years of practice and still this and yet in fact yeah of course 
So, what faith allows here is that we can respond in situations even when we may be under pressure. The ability to stay present with something that we find scary or unsettling or difficult, whether it be a physically uncomfortable sensation, whether it be a, a pattern of, of activity in our mind of thoughts or feelings or mind states that we're, we're finding hard to handle, just being willing to turn towards it, to face it. That, again, that's an expression of a certain faith. And with regard to some of these, one way we could understand faith is that when we actually turn towards our experience with an attitude of, of being willing to open to this, rather than feeling we need to shy away from it, which is much more the attitude or the perception that fear generates. Faith doesn't mean that there isn't fear or confusion at times. But it means that nonetheless we're able to act because we can rest in something. And I'll come back to perhaps some of the aspects of what that is. One thing I wanted to just touch briefly here is the way in which when fear arises, it's very easily paralyzing for us. When fear arises, the tendency of it is to color all the different options. Like if I do this, that's going to be bad. If I do that, that's going to be bad. If I do nothing, well, that's going to be even worse. And if I, get the, if I make the wrong choice, then I'm going to be at fault for whatever happened. I don't know if you're familiar with that kind of pattern of thinking, but when fear is there, everything appears fearful because we're looking through it. And it's really important to recognize that fear takes us out of where we are into scenarios about the future. And all of them will look fearful because that's the nature of what's happening. That's what fear does. And what's important to remember and to recognize is that the experience is always happening here. Fear always and only ever happens in the present. If we can remember that, if we can come back to that and say, oh, what's it like here? This experience, it might be tight, it might be shaky, or it might be queasy, or it might be dizzy, but it's happening here. It's not something in the future that we need to respond to. That movement into the future is actually an attempt to escape from the experience in the present and to resolve this experience here by trying to organize the future. And it doesn't work. It absolutely doesn't work. It simply amplifies the distress. So, seeing if we can come back to just, oh, it's this. Here I am. And see, maybe we can trust our possibility, our capacity for meeting this experience too in the present, which is the only place we can meet it and the only place we need to meet it. Sometimes what also happens in the meditation, and this is not unusual and in fact frequently reported, is that we come with some sort of idea of what's supposed to happen, or we interpret from what's been told in the instructions a picture or an image of what should be happening, and then we try and make it happen. And so the number of times someone has said to me, you know, we're here trying to stay permanently with the breath, and the idea is to never wander away from the breath. 
or from the idea is to stay permanently attentive to my body and never wander away from my body or to feel every footstep and never have enough. And we kind of somehow make an objective that isn't what the instructions said, which were to simply pay attention, be present as fully as we're able and notice when we go elsewhere and come back. We kind of make some kind of almost inevitably and unattainably perfect ideal thing that we're supposed to attain and then quite inevitably we fail at it. We can't do it. We can't make our mind just be quiet. We can't produce an experience of calm peacefulness by thinking that we're supposed to. It doesn't happen that way at all. And yet easily we can encounter a sense of, of failure or a sense of, I can't do it, that arises out of that. And we've, we've touched on this and mentioned it in terms of self-doubt, the way that easily we feel like, I can't get there, I can't make it happen. And part of the response that's important with that particular hindrance is turning back to a sense of faith, of, of what it is that we can trust in. And we can't have faith in being able to make a certain experience happen, so maybe we need to let go of trying to do that. What we can trust is the possibility of being able to meet each experience, whatever it is. Because if we check that one out, we'll see that's possible. That we can do. And we begin then to trust it really deeply. You know, so often it happens. In meditation, someone's sort of really just trying to be present, trying to be struggling with the mind, struggling with the body, you know. Body's uncomfortable, I'm restless. Oh, wish it would go, wish it would go. Finally it goes. So, oh, 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 oh. Thank you, that is good. Oh, that is so good. And, and they fall asleep. And then, oh no, I've fallen asleep. Oh no. I need to stay awake, I need to stay awake. Of course... And then something else. And sometimes with all of that, we at some point look around and think, I can't do this. This is hopeless. And everyone else seems to be sitting there so quiet, so calm, so peaceful. And the thought goes, they can do it. They can meditate. They're obviously well on the way to full enlightenment. It's like I'm sitting here in this room, there's 95 Buddhas to be and one Overcooked vegetable. <laughs> and of course, at that point, we're oh, hopeless, give up. So we just, the person beside might look around, and that person that was a moment ago full of doubt and worry and concern sitting there. And I think, oh, they're very calm, they look peaceful. <laughs> and it goes on again. We tell these stories very easy that undermine. Again, that sense of possibility. That sense of, yeah, this we can do. So I really invite you to notice if that starts to arise for you. And to know that you're in good company. Very good company. We uh, received a note earlier saying, you know, after many years of trying, it seems I'm not able to quieten my mind. Is it possible? You know? And actually the answer is yes. But not if we're trying to do it by subduing or suppressing our minds. 
we might imagine, well, maybe it's possible for other people, the Buddha or some great practitioners or, you know, people who are made up with a different mind. You know, it's, it's my genetics, not someone like me. I've got this mind that thinks all the time. With that kind of question, and again, there can be an issue of faith there. Is it possible? What I would say with regard to that is that more important here than a mind that's without thinking is a quality of quietitude or quietness of the mind that isn't actually about not having any thoughts, but that's about not contending with what is happening. Not contending with our experience, which includes the fact of the mind that thinks. Not struggling with that, not contending with it. That is actually what a quiet mind is. And that's not dependent on a mind that has no, th- or having no thoughts in the mind. A calm mind may have no thoughts. Calmness can be developed. Tranquility and incredible depths, profound and remarkable depths of tranquility can be developed. And the mind can cease to generate thoughts. I'm not selling this as an advertisement. It's not the most important thing, although it's beneficial and useful. But I think it's really important to understand that that doesn't come about merely through applying some technology. That's equally dependent on the way we set up our whole lives. Finding depths of calmness and that inner stillness requires us to to make, for instance, the, the ethical training guidelines that Fred spoke about on the first night, that orientation towards non-harming as a central pillar of our life. Because if it's not so, there will be a constant agitation in the mind. And equally, we need to learn what it means to let go. And that, I'm not going to endeavour to go into all of here because that's really an ongoing subject of the whole retreat. Though I'll, I'll touch on some elements of it. So, mindfulness, which is the primary orientation that we, in, in most of the formal practice, apart from the, the metta, the loving-kindness meditation, primary orientation towards mindfulness as a place of beginning. Mindfulness, as we start to notice what we're experiencing, as that quality deepens, we start to notice, among other things, where we hold and where we resist. This starts to stand out to us that that's what's going on a lot of the time. We're not just here for all that activity to stop, as if if we just paid attention, then it would stop. That would be nice. And if it worked, great. But it doesn't seem to happen or work that way. In paying attention, we notice the tendency to grasping and resisting. And as we start to look at it and see it, the wisdom, the understanding begins to arise that shows us, oh, actually this is painful. Actually, this really hurts. This process of trying to get hold of or keep experiences. The process of trying to get rid of or prevent the arising of other experiences. That's actually painful. And compassion, seeing that suffering, compassion says, oh, actually, I need to let go here. I need to let go of that grasping or let go of that resistance. But it requires faith. Faith. 
in order to let go. It actually still comes back to that quality because faith takes its expression in action. It's, it's not an ideology or a belief, as I said. And faith is needed to let in our process of letting go because we don't know and we can't know what it is we let go into. If we're feeling like, I've got to keep this experience that I'm having, maybe there's some sense of ease in the body, I'm thinking, wow, this is great, my meditation's really, you know, on a roll now, I've got to keep it. We don't know what will happen if we don't hold on to it. We're afraid maybe that it'll disappear. And then our meditation, we imagine, will have come off the rails. Now, it's not necessarily so, but we don't know what will happen if we don't hold on. And likewise, if something difficult arises, you know, there's this sort of sore, aching feeling in my, in my shoulder. And it's like, what if that gets worse? You know, what if it's like this all week? I better resist it. I better try and stop it. I better do something. But we don't know what's going to happen if we just let it be. Even if we've done it before, we still don't know what's going to happen this time. And so we're always being invited, challenged and invited to let go into something that is not yet known until we enter it. That's the truth of every moment. We can't know it until we enter it. And the capacity, the willingness to enter into something that we don't know what it will be requires faith. Not the faith that we will have a particular experience there, but the faith that we actually can meet it once we find out what it is. It's like in taking a step, trusting that if we put our, fit, our foot down on the earth and it starts to sink into the, into the soil and disappear up to the ankle, that we can actually lift it back up and put it back on the firm stuff. And walking slowly, one thing you might notice is you have the opportunity to do that. You put your foot down and you feel the ground before you pick this one up. Mostly when we're walking in normal life mode, you know, this one's in the ground and this one's coming over before we know whether this is going to hold us. That kind of is often what's happening in life. We're toppling forward and we kind of keep going by rushing. Slowing down starts to give us some other possibilities. And that's, again, where we can start to learn how to meet more fully each experience. And yet there's this courage that's required of us to let go. It takes courage. But mostly we want to know what's going to happen when we do. And another story, which uh, I think uh, I learned this one from Christina, so I'll attribute that. I don't know if she had personal knowledge of the story, but um, nonetheless... uh, Some of you will probably have heard it before, but uh, I really like it. And it involves a man who was one day walking along on the edge of a cliff and not being particularly mindful, thinking about something else, stumbled and fell off the edge, plummeted 50 yards down the side of the slope and caught the branches of a tree sticking out of the slope another 100 yards below him, sharp jagged rocks of a river and a riverbank and gorge. And it was like, oh, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble. And despite being a lifelong atheist, immediately the attention went to, 
maybe somebody might be able to save me. Huh? Because there ain't no human beings around. Maybe God can save me. And he said, having this thought, oh yeah, God, if you're out there, save me and I'll believe in you. I'll have faith in you forevermore. And this loud voice, oh, that's what they all say. <laughs> so shocked he almost drops, let's go of the branch. No, no, I, I have faith. I really, I feel deeply within me. I, I believe in you, God. Yeah, save me, save me. Thank, please. Oh, I don't know, I've heard that before. People say that and then as soon as it's all over, they go back to their old ways. No, no, no. I, I, I have this, it, I feel it. It's true, it's real. I, I have faith in you, God. And it's okay, okay then. I'll save you. Let go of the branch. <laughs> Let go of the branch? Do you think I'm crazy? So here we're invited to let go. Again and again and again. And it seems that most people who have done so are still here. In small and larger ways, we've probably all done so at times in our lives. Sometimes when we had no choice. But it doesn't have to come to that point of no choice or when our fingers have just given up and we can no longer hold on and then... But sometimes, actually, it does work that way and we only let go because we just have no other option. But with this process, we are learning to trust in the truth of life and the way life is. And to bring our best intention, our deepest aspiration, to engage as wholeheartedly and fully as we can in this, as well as we understand it, and then let go. That the, the outcome isn't in our control. This is hard for us. This isn't what we want. This isn't what we like. This isn't what sells seats at meditation retreats that you're not going to get what you want or be in control of what happens. <laughs> and yet there's a freedom in that. There's a peace in that. So as we cultivate attentiveness, to body, to breath, to our unfolding experience. As we cultivate in the loving kindness, the metta meditation, a sense of friendliness or care, whether at times we're really present or very kindly and at other times not so present or not so kindly, we can't and it doesn't serve us to really try and evaluate that. There's this orientation, the setting of a direction and then let's see where we go with this. What happens if we let go of dwelling? What happens if we let go of negativity? We can only really know that by doing it. What we hear about it, what we're told about it, in the end, doesn't get us there. 
And yet, I think it's also important to to see and to know that this is a well-trodden path. That this is something born of human experience, of, of generations of women and men like ourselves who have found that this is possible. And that by really turning towards a sense of what is most important to what we love in life and saying, this I want to rest my life on. This I want to rest my life in. That we find a way to move forward. I had a very powerful experience in relationship to this. Um, was, uh, I'm just thinking, it must be nine years ago, eight, nine years ago in uh, 2002 during the height of the Intifada in um, Israel-Palestine, the uh, uprising at the time. I was asked by the uh, Sangha there to, uh, to lead a walk that uh, I'd been teaching in, in Israel for a number of years and uh, have connection to the Dharma community there. And they'd, in, in feeling just the horror of what was going on and the tragedy of the violence that was going between the Israeli and the Palestinian communities, the Jewish and the, um, the Muslim communities within that region, there was just a lot of pain and suffering and no sense of how to respond to it. And this incredible terror had gripped the land, but people didn't want to go out because bombs were going off and there were you know, armed, you know, in terms of the, uh, the, the Israeli Defense Force and then the, the, um, the, the members of the uh, Intifada who were, in effect, attacking the civilian populations of both communities. There was this incredible terror and fear, so people weren't going out. No, everyone was staying inside when I, when I came. And these people decided, okay, we want to go and just express a different value here, not fear, not hatred. And the way that they decided to do was to walk from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, out in the open, without armed guards, which is unheard of in, in that region, and um, frowned upon, in fact, seriously. And a group of initially 30, but joined by more over the time, went out and did this. And there's a lot I could say about it, but the piece that struck me, and I, was incred- I felt incredibly privileged to be asked to come and, and, and lead the walk. Um, I have family, my, one side of my family is from, from Israel. So uh, I hadn't really fully explored that connection at that point, but I had a lot of sense of the people and felt a lot for their situation. But what struck me and what was incredible was that everyone felt, oh, we're setting ducks, we're walking out, we're publicizing, here's a bunch of people you can attack who are publicly defenseless, so to speak. But as we went out and walked and did this and walked through Palestinian villages, through Arab villages, through fundamentalist Jewish villages. They were some of the scariest ones for this group that was mostly Jewish, Israeli, just a few Palestinians and Arabs. Um, What happened was the fear dropped away. It was remarkable how everyone who participated in that, the fear dropped away. And what actually came was the sense of love and the sadness of living in this condition and the, and, the, and the need and the wish to share with each other about what could be done. And a lot of initiatives came from that that continue to this day, from that walk, that week of pilgrimage, really. But that, for me, was a very profound statement of saying, actually, there's something here. We need to find a way to act. And the faith and the trust that if we just do something, born of that care and that goodness, it will make a difference. So, 
So for us to see that when we act in that way, when we allow ourselves to trust our deepest sense of possibility of what we love or value the most, and, and, and that just the very quality of care of love might be there. We allow ourselves to trust that. There's a, a way in which the space opens up for us. The way in which, there's a way in which that actually transforms the experience we encounter. Because we're not resting or trying to put our weight on the experience itself. We're not trying to ask the experience to hold our life up. We're actually resting it in something deeper. And in terms of what we can really allow our life to rest in, we learn in practice that we can actually rest in the meeting of experience, in the what's happening here. Not that it's going to fit in with what we like always, or what we prefer, or what we wish for, but that that we can meet it, that we can meet whatever comes. And there's a peacefulness in that capacity to meet, even the challenging, the scary, and at times the tragic and even horrific things that we might be asked to meet in life. There's something about this capacity that we're developing to connect with care, with interest, with openness that is remarkably powerful. We come to trust more deeply as we practice. We can also trust and have faith in the goodness of our aspiration, what it is that moves us in our life. Whether it be just in a sense of simply wishing to deepen our own well-being or a vast vision of serving the welfare of all of life and of transforming of humanity and planetary culture into something based in in nobility and kindness and truth. To see how this is something that springs forth in us, that's there in us, to trust that it's... I'm always struck how even in the face of tragedy and pain and loss and violence, there are those people who seem to find nonetheless the goodness in their hearts to respond. And sometimes we might notice it ourselves. I I remember when I uh, was on staff at Gaia House, the retreat centre in Devon, where Christina and I live nearby, um, about 20 years ago, and there'd just been a a conversation between myself and another staff member. And um, I'd just arrived, and he was English, and I was from New Zealand, and I hadn't yet worked out that although we use the same words, we speak a very different language. And I was really upset by what had happened, and I didn't know how it had happened, but it was really painful. I remember walking out and standing by the pond where all these frogs were going, and I was just fuming. And then just watching these frogs going, it was just a sense of, hmm, look at that. And just really, oh, wow, look, that can change. That can shift. And something in that just was a marker for me of, oh wow, that capacity to release, to open, it just comes back through again. And that's, of course, a simple and small example, but there are many examples that we can see and that I trust you can and will see in your practice. And to see how that that heart opening again and again comes because we, we do care. We wouldn't do this if we didn't care. 
Even our negativity, in fact, our reactivity comes because we care. But the caring isn't necessarily allied to wisdom. And that's what allows the caring to express itself skillfully and in a way that makes the difference that we're looking for in our life. To trust equally, to have faith in the capacity to cultivate the wholesome, that we can deepen in patience, in loving-kindness, in attentiveness, in focus, in clarity, in courage, in kindness, in generosity, in enthusiasm. All these things, yes, they can and do develop. To trust in that, to have faith in that, to let our life rest in that possibility. To trust in, in a way, life itself, that it offers us what we need in order to learn. To have faith that what's coming to us is not just what should be coming to us or what needs to come to us, but it's, which it is, but it's the very stuff that actually is the fruit and the grist, sorry, the, the fuel and the grist for our awakening. It's this, it's this stuff here. To really trust that. It's not happening wrong. And to trust, to have faith in the dharmas is one of the, the primary fields of allowing our heart to rest. We speak of in this teaching and practice, uh, letting the heart rest in the dharma, in the, the sense of oh, yeah, the way things are. The way things are. Oh. Rather than how they should be or how I wish them, the way things are. Yeah, that's always here for us. And the teachings of the Dharma that point to the way things are, that reveal the way things are, that allow us to attune to the way things are. This we can trust in, the teachings of wisdom and compassion that lead to the end of conflict and struggle and suffering. These we can trust we can have faith in, we can learn to rest in. And to rest, to trust, to have faith in the potential we all have, in the depth of our heart and our being, to discover what it means to live an awakened life, to realize and know for ourselves the freedom of the boundless heart. that this is something that the Buddha in his teaching and in his life as a human being, not different than any of us as human beings, in his realization of it, in his revelation of it through the teachings, pointing to this again and again, is speaking to all of us of that potential within us and this potential that's been shared and explored and actualized through the generations of practitioners of men and women who have practiced in this way through generations and generations to the living generation in which this continues to be alive and here for us all. An incredible blessing. And to trust in this possibility. We talk about taking refuge in the Buddha. It's like allowing our heart to rest in this wakefulness. Buddha means wakefulness. Equally as it means the one who is awakened. And this wakefulness is right here. It's happening right now. Or we wouldn't be here or experience anything. 
And this too, we can learn to more and more deeply rest our heart in. So let's sit quietly together for a few moments. So may we all, through our practice and in our lives, come to find and rest deeply in the, in the ground of faith, of sada, that our hearts may rest in the ground of life. For our own welfare and for the well-being of all, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.